on August 10th, 1991, an American freelance writer was found dead in a bathtub in his room, 517 of the Sheraton Hotel in Martinsburg, West Virginia. The case he was working on got him killed. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruce Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of Danny Casalaro. You do what they told you. Now 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 you do what they told you. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. Well, ladies and gentlemen, tonight you get to hear the sultry sounds of just Arlo. We have been having some technical difficulties with our Zoom account, and poor Coach is locked out, and we have nothing in the tank, so you get the conclusion, part two of Danny Casalero with the one, the only, Arlo. But before we get started, I wanted to give some shout-outs to our two newest patrons, that is Isling and Jennifer Sosbys, or Sosbys. I do apologize if I mispronounced that, Jennifer. But thank you to both of you for contributing to the Bruise Crew. So I'm not going to bore you with any other business, and let's just jump back into it. When we left you, we left you confused, and you probably were like, this is ridiculous. This, All of this is barely touched on Danny Casolaro. Well, that's true. And we now get into more of dealing with Danny. So Danny was warned from all sides to back off his investigation. Bill Hamilton, remember, he's the one that created Inns Law. He stated and noted that a number of Danny's contacts involved in U.S. intelligence warned him that some of the leads he was following could be fatal. Bill also claimed that, quote, Danny was planning to go to a particular facility in the Washington, D.C. area owned by the United States government, a facility with connections to one or more of the people who run the octopus. Now, I think you can assume it's a covert intelligence facility from the way that it's presented. And just going to the facility, Bill was warned that Danny could get killed. And this is a direct quote from Bill. It says, The other thing that he was doing was making inquiries over the telephone to the syndicate in L.A. And those inquiries had rattled the cages of some people out there. And there was some concern that they might respond to the rattling by killing Danny. The claim that I have heard from some sources is that someone with mob ties is a member of the leadership of the octopus and it's someone from the L.A. mob. And Danny was on to it. The whereabouts of this security installation was communicated to Danny Kesslero by one Robert Nichols. Now, as Robert Nichols passed warnings to Danny about Reconosciuto, Reconosciuto was warning him to not trust Nichols. He said that he mentioned to Nichols an attempt by the Cali cocaine cartel to stop the extradition of an alleged Colombian drug runner named Gilberto Rodriguez Orojelo, and Nichols, quote, went ballistic. Reconosciuto later implied that Danny may have died for the sake of this information, but by the time I heard about it, there was nothing I could do, you know, except to warn Danny. And I called from that day on. It was on a later Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all the way through the weekend. 
And that is from Reconosciuto. Now, toward the end, coincidence began to enshroud Danny. A woman he picked up at a party surprised him with the depth of her knowledge about the research and the claim that she knew someone connected to the octopus. He ran into a friend of Peter Venenekis, the Justice Department official Reconosciuto accused of threatening him at a restaurant. The man claimed to have, have served in the Special Forces and had previously worked for a company connected to Inslaw. He had been so forthcoming with information that he alarmed Danny's friends. These coincidences would feed into any of Danny's paranoia of the octopus. Now, the Hamiltons believe that Danny was being tailed by a man named Joseph Queller, an Army Special Service officer and a friend of Peter Vedenicus. On Sunday, August 4th, Danny attended a pool party at a real estate agent and close friend, Daniel Stalling. Now, Danielle had attempted to subdivide Danny's property for sale to provide him with some badly needed money. Danielle noticed Danny's concern over threats to his life. He convinced his brother John, who had been staying with him, to move away from him and into another house. On Monday, August the 5th, Danny's housekeeper, Olga, came by his home to find Danny conferring with a man in the kitchen. Now, Olga would describe this man as a heavy-set and possibly East Indian origin. That same day, Danny telephoned Bill McCoy, a retired Army CID officer living in Fairfax, Virginia. They discussed the octopus, and Danny claimed that the time has given him the go-ahead for an article, and that is The Time magazine. He also told McCoy that Time Warner had agreed to finance his work, now, both claims were later denied by the Time Warner Group. Danny also described to McCoy around the world excursion in which he planned to investigate the octopus, financed by the advance money that Daniel was trying to get him, and also supposedly an advance that Time Warner and Time Magazine was going to give him. Danny was wanting to visit 13 countries in two months, finishing the trip off with a visit to arms merchant Edwin Wilson at an Illinois prison. Danny noted in his papers, quote, when the advance comes, roast pig summer party, end quote. Now he feels that he has his, I guess his sights set on this main person that he's trying to uncover. Now, Tony Casalero saw his brother Danny on Monday, August 5th, and thought he looked tired. Danny would tell Tony that he had been getting threatening phone calls in the middle of the night, ruining his sleep, adding that the calls had been going on for about three months. Now, a close friend, Ben Mason, appeared at Danny's house around 3.30 p.m., and although Mason was anxious to go to a restaurant to eat, Danny retrieved five pages of material from a box and showed it to Mason. The first page had information on contra arms transfers allegedly involving Admon Khashoggi. Two more pages were photocopies of BCCI checks for $1 million and another for $4 million drawn on Admon Khashoggi and Manukar Gorbanafar counts. These checks had been known to researchers since 1987 or earlier. Another page contained a passport photo of Hassam Ali Abram. Ali said to be the manager of Sitico, and that is allegedly a front for Iraqi arms deals. From the way Danny spoke to Mason, it seemed that he had met Ibrahim. Doug Vaughn's research determined that the pages had come from Bob Bickle, who had gotten them from Richard Brunecki, another figure prominent in Danny's research, someone who had provided testimony about the October surprise. Danny had Mason look at the outline for the octopus book and mentioned that he was discouraged about his agent's inability to sell the book. He said that he dreaded the idea of obtaining a new agent in contrast to what he said to McCoy, he had received his third rejection. This one from Little Brown and Company. Danny knew that there was a $178,000 balloon payment due on his mortgage 
and he had taken at least two loans to cover it. Now, Danny planned to fictionalize his view of the octopus and was at odds with his eagerness to prove the truth of the octopus's existence. Now, perhaps he had plans beyond his single book manuscript. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. On Tuesday, August the 6th, Danny finished what he was working on, having worked steadily at the typewriter since the previous day. Again, his housekeeper, Olga, assisted him, this time packing a black leather bag and watched him pack papers into a briefcase. When she lifted the briefcase, she found it heavy. Danny told her, quote, I have all my papers. Wish me luck. I'll see you in a couple of days, end quote. He hugs Olga, and she crossed her fingers for good luck. Before leaving the house, Danny received a call from Ben Mason. Danny was upbeat, Mason said. Quote, he was enthusiastic about his source in West Virginia, end quote. Mason had called to discuss Danny's financial situation, a topic Danny had also discussed with another friend, Art Weinfield. Both Mason and Weinfield had concurred with Danny on the importance of getting that advance, and Danny told Mason that if it were not forthcoming, he would have to borrow from his family as he had done many times in the past. Now, shortly before his trip to Martinsburg, Danny called Virginia McCullough. They had often discussed the idea that members of the government might have been engaging in drug running in order to fund guns. Danny would tell McCullough, quote, you know, Virginia, I'm becoming a believer, end quote. McCullough said that Danny sounded, quote, distressed, but distressed because he had to face the truth, end quote. At the same time, McCullough recalled, quote, he sounded very upbeat. When he came back, he would have justice right where he wanted them in the Inslaw matter, end quote. Justice being the Justice Department. Now, one of the reasons Danny was headed to Martinsburg was to interview for a second time one or more members of the staff of Senator Robert Byrd. The interview had been planned for Friday night, August 9th, 1991. Danny had mentioned to the Hamiltons that one chapter of the Octopus book would be about Senator Byrd. He believed the secrets that would crack the Enslaw case resided with the member or members of Byrd's staff he was going to interview. He also told Bill Turner that he was going to meet with two of Byrd's staff, one of whom was related to Mrs. Peter Videnkus. And reporter Sarah McClendon said that Danny had spoken with Mr. and Mrs. Vedenikus and that Mrs. Vedenikus is or was Byrd's chief of staff in his Washington office and had two relatives working on Byrd's staff. Bill Hamilton also claimed that the Martinsburg stay was supposed to involve a meeting with both Vedenikus's and Earl Bryan, quote, he had been researching this thing for a long time and was very excited about the information he was finally getting, end quote, said Ben Mason. Mason would go on to state he was in good spirits and very excited about the source he was going to see in West Virginia. He had been digging into the stuff for months and getting nowhere. Danny's brother Tony said in a telephone interview, quote, then suddenly he said he had this big breakthrough, some source he had, end quote. Danny had also told his brother that if an accident happened to him, not to believe it. And according to Bill McCoy, Danny made one more call on August 5th, and that was to Bob Bickle, a Texas oil engineer and former Customs Bureau informant, and told Bob that he was going to bring back the head of the octopus. Then Danny heads to Martinsburg. So Danny was seen in his car behind the IRS building in Martinsburg waiting for his contact. Now, Reconosciuto told Unsolved Mysteries that, quote, Danny had a source there inside the IRS's computer data center that was giving him hard copy printouts of IRS information on certain specific targets that Danny was after, end quote. Now, shortly before noon on Thursday, August 8th, Danny checked in to room 517 at the Sheraton Hotel in Martinsburg. A few minutes later, he went to the Stone Crab Inn, which was a restaurant located an exit north on I-81. He was there for approximately three hours and drank a bottle of wine. Around 3 p.m., Danny left for a pizza hut located just a block from the Sheraton. 
he ordered a pitcher of beer and a pizza. Danny would flirt with the waitress, saying that he was a member of the Edgar Allan Poe Society and quoting from the poem epigraph to Fitzgerald's The Great Gadsby. And this is not out of character for Danny. You know, he likes to swoon ladies with his great prose and vast knowledge of poems. Now, while there, he sat alone for about a half an hour. Then he left. Around 5 p.m., Danny went into the lounge, Heatherfield's, which is located in the Sheraton, with a man described by a waitress as, quote, maybe Arab or Iranian. The man complained about slow service to the waitress, but Danny apologized for him, saying he had had a hard day. They drank about four beers apiece and then left the lounge. Danny returned to the lounge for a bucket of ice around 5.30 p.m. On the way back to his room, he ran into Mike Looney, the hotel guest who was staying next door to him. Looney noticed the ice bucket Danny was carrying and commented, quote, It's a hell of a note when you have to walk all the way to Virginia to get a bucket of ice, end quote. Looney encountered Danny again around 8 p.m. in the bar. Danny was talking with two blonde women in tights. After the women left, Looney commented to Danny, quote, look too good to be true, end quote. Danny had been drinking imported bottled beer, but switched to a less expensive draft beer during happy hour. He and Looney struck up a conversation about the octopus research, and Danny told him he was going to meet a contact, an Arab, Looney thought he remembered, whose information would crack the case. So the appointed time came and no one appears. So Danny left, possibly to make a phone call or to go to the bathroom. Anyway, when he returns, he tells Looney that the source was only going to furnish some travel documents and so he didn't mind getting drunk. Danny and Looney remained in the bar until last call, which was around 11.30 p.m. Looney would later recall, quote, he was excited about what he was doing. He thought he was on to something big. He was convinced that there was a conspiracy I was taking a kind of devil's advocate position, end quote. Around 2 p.m. on Friday, August the 9th, Danny met with the informant Bill Turner in Turner's car in the parking lot of the Sheraton. And it's been surmised that they did this to avoid what Danny said to some of his friends that he felt like his hotel room was bugged. Now, Turner said, quote, Danny came bouncing up with that famous old smile of his and opened the car door and got in. He then, Turner says, Danny was carrying a cardboard accordion file and that he gave Danny some papers regarding mismanagement at Hughes and at the Pentagon. Turner also told Danny about problems he was having with the Veterans Administration over charges that he had received improper benefits. The meeting lasted approximately 45 minutes. Turner described Danny as enthusiastic, saying that Danny was excited about wrapping things up over the weekend and that Danny would tell Turner He'd be back in touch. Danny's last words to Turner were, quote, Bill, old buddy, got to watch your P's and Q's and look over your shoulder, end quote. So Danny heads back to the Stone Crab Inn Friday at about 2.30 p.m. where he had a shrimp cocktail and began drinking Bud Light. He paid with a credit card at 5.12 p.m. and told the bartender that he had, quote, a rough night. The bartender thought Danny looked lonely and introspective. The bartender remembered him saying, quote, as a, a man with something to say, he was just like this. Take a minute and talk to me. He told me to keep on smiling, end quote. After leaving the Stone Crab Inn sometime before 6 p.m., Danny made a phone call from a payphone on I-81 and a collect call to his mother's home. He spoke with his niece and said he'd be late and might not make it at all to the family dinner. Now, his family is not surprised because... His brother, Tony, stated that, quote, when the phone rang, we knew it would be Danny. It was like him to show up late or call and say that he wasn't coming at all, end quote. Danny's whereabouts are not known until about 10 p.m. that evening. So we don't know where he went after he talked to his family on the phone. But around 10, he entered a convenience store located near the Sheraton and waited while the clerk brewed a fresh pot of coffee. The last time anyone would see Danny Casalero alive, he was walking back to the Sheraton with a cup of coffee. 
Now, while Danny had been in Martinsburg, some of his friends became concerned about not hearing from him. Bill Hamilton called Robert Nichols in L.A. on Friday, August 9th, worried about not having heard from Danny and asked if Nichols had heard from him. According to Hamilton, Nichols said, quote, Yes, he called late Monday night. Danny sounded like the cat who had swallowed the canary. He was euphoric. I have probably had 50 hours of telephone conversations with him in the last year. He always plays chess with me on the phone. Danny told me he had just come back from the meeting with a source and he now knew everything about Enslaw and the Promise software. And the Hamiltons were going to be very excited, end quote. Now, Nichols also informed Hamilton that he was traveling to Europe that same evening. And Clink, a CNBC producer who sometimes had dinner with Danny, worried when he made no phone calls to her about a program she had just finished that she knew would intrigue Danny. She went by his house and, finding it empty, scribbled a note to him, and the note stated, Danny, where the hell are you? Bill Hamilton called the house as well and received no answer. Now, Danny's housekeeper, Olga, would state that she received four or five strange phone calls that day. At 9 a.m., a man called and said, quote, I will cut his body and throw it to the sharks, end quote. Approximately 30 minutes later, a man who Olga believed was different from the first caller said, quote, drop dead and then hung up. When Olga answered a third call, there was no voice, only music playing in the background. A fourth call had music playing, and at 10 p.m., there was another call. This time, the other end was completely silent. Now, this is where you get to see that there's something else going on, not like you hadn't seen it before in all of this, but the Village Voices National Affairs Editor Dan Bischoff took a call from an anonymous man who said the paper should, quote, look into the disappearance of a reporter investigating the October surprise in West Virginia, end quote. Now, this supposedly happened sometime after 4 p.m. on Sunday, August the 11th. Now, Dan would pass the word on via email to Jonathan Larson, the editor-in-chief of The Village Voice. A woman working in housekeeping at the Sheraton discovers Danny Casalero's body on Saturday, August the 10th, 1991, just before 12.51 p.m. He was found in the bathtub naked with seven to eight cuts on his right wrist and three to four on his left wrist. One of the cuts to his wrist was so deep that it severed the tendons. According to the lady that found Danny, there was blood splattered on the floor and the wall around him, and he had a shoelace tied around his neck. When police arrived, they decided that it would be a good idea to drain the damn bathtub. So there's no water samples taken. There's no drain catch to collect anything that was underneath him. It's just gone. When they finally do move Danny's body, they find an empty beer can two white plastic trash bags, and a single-edge razor blade. Also in the bathroom, they find a half-empty bottle of wine, an ashtray on the toilet, a broken glass on the ground, and some bloody towels. The rest of the room, the hotel room, was nice and neat. But the question is, what's missing? And you guessed it, all of Danny's files and that briefcase that had every bit of his information in it. A legal pad and pen were on the desk in the room with a single page torn off, and on that page was written, quote, To those that I love the most, please forgive me for the worst possible thing I could have done. Most of all, I am sorry to my son. I know deep down inside that God will let me in. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I wanted to improve my gut health. I needed more energy. I wanted to optimize my immune system and I despise taking vitamins. So I've been on it for about five weeks and it's pretty good. I, it doesn't taste like a super healthy green smoothie. It has a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to. You know, it's it, it's very good. It's 75 high-quality vitamins and minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and 
adaptogens. It helps start your day off right. And it's a special blend of ingredients that supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, energy recovery, you name it. Now, I usually take it in the mornings and right after I have my coffee. And then I've noticed that my digestion has gotten more regulated. My energy levels are up. I would say the taste is more like a coconut, but some people say that it's more like a mango. But I've had my wife try it. She loves it. And I always make sure that I have it when I travel. It is lifestyle friendly, whether you are keto, paleo, vegan, dairy free or gluten free. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while still having a great taste. It supports better sleep quality and recovery, and it also supports mental clarity and alertness. It's the one thing with the best things. Athletic Greens use the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. The price is going to cost you less than $3 a day, and it's cheaper than getting all the different supplements yourself, and you're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews. It's recommended by professional athletes. And Athletic Greens was created when the founder experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on a complicated supplement routine to recovery. It cost him $100 a day. So he created Athletic Greens after experiencing how difficult it was to create an optimal nutrition routine on your own. It is trusted by leading health experts such as Tim Ferriss and Michael Gervais. And for every purchase, we donate to organizations helping to get nutritious foods to kids in needs, including No Kid Hungry here in the U.S. And in 2020, Athletic Greens donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. Right now is the time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash emerging. That's E-M-E-R-G-I-N-G. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So just before 1 p.m., police call family members and reports of Danny's death began to appear in the media. When Danny's brother, Tony, spoke with the detective, Sergeant George Smartwood, the one who first informed the family of Danny's apparent suicide, Tony was told a contradictory description of the wounds, cuts on both the wrists and the arms. Then Tony was told by Smartwood about finding some of the things in the bathroom. Tony would tell Smartwood what Danny was investigating, and he would press the detective if they had discovered any of Danny's research papers. Other than the suicide message, there were no other documents in that hotel room. No autopsy had been planned. Smartwood directed Tony to the medical examiner's office where coroner Sandra Bining in turn, referred him to the West Virginia Medical Examiner, a man with a name, and I'm not making this up, ladies and gentlemen, James, who went by Jack, and his last name was Frost. So yes, the West Virginia Medical Examiner was Jack Frost. On late Monday, Frost agreed with Tony about the suspicious circumstances of Danny's death and scheduled an autopsy for the following Wednesday. He then told Tony that Danny's body had already been embalmed. How the hell that happened is one of the bigger mysteries in this case. What old Jack Frost tells Tony is that the police had already decided that it was an apparent cut-and-dry suicide and they wanted him embalmed. Sandra Brining had turned Danny's body over to the funeral home because the family had not received prior notification, the embalming had actually violated the law and had made the autopsy that much more difficult, if not impossible. So Tony would turn around and contact Detective Smartwood and explain what he had just found out. Mysteriously, the detective backpedaled and quickly went back to the Sheraton to investigate the death. 
They search for indications of a break-in, fingerprints, footprints on the roof. In case someone had scaled the walls and entered through a window, one detective took a dog onto the local highway to look for papers, but nothing was ever found. Not a single fingerprint other than Danny's was in that hotel room. Now, again, we go back to the corner. Sandra Bining's husband, David, was a fire department lieutenant and had the bathroom door removed less than half an hour after the body was found. The coroner herself, also an emergency room nurse, was the one that drained the bathtub without a filter. The body had been moved to the Brown Funeral Home and its director, Charles Brown, had done the embalming. Sandra performed a brief medical examination before the autopsy. She took a blood sample from the heart, noted old scars on the right leg and his scalp, and an old bruise inside the upper right arm. She also counted the slash scars on his wrist. The wrist had seven or eight slashes. The right had three or four, all of them deep, forceful cuts. It was then that Brining determined that the death was a suicide. Now, old Jack Frost's autopsy agreed with Brining's conclusion that Danny had bled out due to the cuts on his wrist. Frost determined that there were no signs of struggle and not enough drug residue in blood and urine samples to indicate an artificial inhibition of any such struggle. But again, keep in mind, he's doing this after Danny's body has been embalmed. And he goes on to state, Quote, no alcohol found in body, traces of codeine from Tylenol 3 and an antidepressant drug were found. Toxicological tissue tests also indicated the presence of hydrocodone used in the painkiller Vicodin. Six tablets of which Danny's dentist had prescribed for him for a procedure three years prior. But the quantity of the antidepressant that was in his system was too minute to identify. Quote, one of the five or six things that bothered me the most, this is one of them, Tony Castellaro commented later. And he goes on to state, because they found no pill bottle, no written prescription at any pharmacy. After Danny's death, Art Winefield accompanied Danny's sister, Mary Ellen, and his son Trey to the Martinsburg police station to recover Danny's car. There, they ran into detectives who identified themselves as working for the National Airport Authority in D.C. The detectives explained that they were looking into possible connections between Danny's death and Standorf's. Remember, Standorf was found in the backseat of his car at the airport with a blow to the head in early January, and his body was only discovered in late January after the car had not moved. He was wrapped in his coat in the backseat. The detectives go on to explain that Army intelligence officers joined their investigation of the case twice before an anonymous caller mentioned the link to Danny's. While the detectives never came up with evidence connecting the two cases, according to Ridgway and Vaughn, they did discover that their anonymous tip came from one of Danny's last informants, Bill Turner. Fearful that he might be the next target on the octopus, Bill gets himself arrested in late September on a bank robbery charge. Now, there's five big file boxes of Danny's octopus investigation notes that were retrieved from his basement office by his close friend Ann Clink, who raced over there as soon as she found out that he was dead. And she says, quote, He'd told me several times that summer that if I heard he met with an accident, make sure I got the shit out of there, says Clink. Over dinner at a place near her CNBC office where she works as a producer for Jack Anderson, she stated toward the end a change had come over Danny, that his obsession with the story had become grim and all-consuming, and that one evening at her place he had turned to her and asked, quote, will you kiss me when I'm dead? Now Danny's brother, Tony, reports in the last couple of months Danny warned him not to believe anything if he died in a, quote, accident. So now we get to the theories, and one of the theories out there is that Danny found procurement fraud, manufacturing fraud, and kickbacks. Now, rumors abound about Air Force intelligence members being sent to West Virginia around the time Danny is killed. 
Bill Hamilton stated that it was confirmed to him from the office of the assistant U.S. attorney from Los Angeles that a maid at the Sheraton in Martinsburg had seen a man coming out of Danny's room the morning he was found dead, but before his body was discovered. Then, subsequently to that meeting, the Justice Department attempted to deny that they had, in fact, confirmed that during the meeting with Bill and his wife, and the efforts to deny it makes you very uncomfortable, you know, is what Bill said. Now, Ari ben Menashe gave Bill Hamilton another tidbit of information about who Danny may have met with the night of his death. Ari claimed that two FBI agents from the Lexington, Kentucky office had scheduled a meeting with Danny in Martinsburg with proof of the illegal sale of promise to the FBI and to Mossad. One of the agents, E.B. Kartnauer, had a grudge about the fact that, quote, Teflon Reagan had protected administration officials from indictments over the October surprise. Now, Ridgway and Vaughn could not get a response from Kartnauer, but a colleague insisted that he had never heard of Danny Casalero and could not discuss Ari because it involved classified information. Now, a little nugget for you, and this is the only time this will be talked about, is through a series of articles on this, it is stated that the person that sold the Promise software to Mossad was none other than Ghislaine Maxwell's father. And the rumor Meal and way down the rabbit hole is that maybe there was a form of the promise software that Ghislaine and her male friend that didn't kill himself in prison may have installed that on a lot of people's computers without their knowledge so that they could spy on them. Now, Lester Knox Coleman III, the former Defense Intelligence Agency operative who swore in an affidavit about seeing bootleg promise software at Cypriot Police Headquarters, had yet another theory, and that goes along these lines. On August the 3rd, Danny called him, Lester, after reading the affidavit and asked if he could help on the Octopus Project with more information. The fact that Danny could track him so easily impressed Lester and, at the same time, pissed him off. But he took the opportunity to strike up a deal. He would tell Danny more of what he knew if Danny helped him find information on John McCloskey, a divorce lawyer who had recruited him into the Defense Intelligence Agency. The lawyer had links to the intelligence community as well. The phone call ended with a promise to exchange information. In nine days, news of Danny's death after a meeting with an unknown informant reached Lester Coleman. Was that final meeting with McCloskey is the question. Now, Lester later discovered that McCloskey owned a horse farm down the road from where Danny died, although he had not been seen in the area for a couple of years. When he called McCloskey's telephone number in Martinsburg, he reached this Shenandoah Women's Center, and the people there had never heard of McCloskey. Coleman called William Hamilton about his suspicions, only to learn about threats Hamilton had received because of promise. The thought of how quickly Danny had tracked him added to Coleman's fear that he may be the next target for, quote, sanctions because of his involvement with the promise affair. He explained as much to Swedish authorities when he petitioned the Swedish government for asylum. Now, in the Bua report that we talked about in part one, it was noted that Danny committed suicide and the Justice Department had no ties to his investigative pursuits. Inns law attorneys were able to have their 80-page 10-attachment rebuttal accompany the report. According to written statements of which Enslaw has obtained copies, another undeclared mission of the Justice Department's covert agents was to ensure that investigative journalist Danny Casalero remained silent about the role of the Justice Department in the Enslaw scandal by murdering him in West Virginia in August of 1991. Enslaw has acquired copies of two relevant written statements 
furnished to a veteran investigative journalist by a national security operative of the U.S. government several months after Danny's death. The individual who reportedly transmitted these written statements to the journalist by fax has testified under oath to being a national security operative for the FBI and CIA. Partial corroboration for his claimed work for the FBI is reportedly available in the sworn testimony of several FBI agents during a recent criminal prosecution. One statement purportedly reflects the operative's personal knowledge and belief that Danny was killed by agents of the Justice Department and is allegedly written in the operative's own hand. The other statement is an excerpt from a typewriter set of questions and answers. The questions were posed to a senior CIA official by the investigative journalist. The answers purportedly from the senior CIA official were reportedly sent by fax to the journalist by the national security operative who was acting as an intermediary. The following is the pertinent questions and answers. Question, do you have information for San Francisco-based investigative journalist George Williamson yet regarding the Danny Casalero matter? Answer, yes. Danny appears to have been working as a freelance writer at the time of his death and was gathering material for a book. He was investigating the Inslaw case. He was on the trail of information that could have made the whole matter public and led to exposure of the Justice Department and their involvement in the matter. Apparently, he was very close to obtaining that information. We do not agree with the consensus of opinion among the reporters who looked into this matter that Danny committed suicide. Danny was murdered by agents of the Justice Department to ensure his silence. The entire matter was handled internally by justice and our agency was not involved. Now, through the Freedom of Information request, muckrock.com has obtained several FBI files that contradict the suicide narrative and the Boer report into the investigation of Justice Department's involvement in the Inslaw case. It is worth checking out if you are interested in diving deeper down this rabbit hole. Something that Muckrock did obtain that we will close with is several oddities that are worth mentioning. And Muckrock did a phenomenal job uncovering a ton of stuff. Now we'll just hit the highlights of what they did find. The first one is police tainted expert witnesses with leading video and withholding evidence. When Martinsburg Police contacted Dr. Henry C. Lee of the Connecticut State Police Forensic Science Laboratory on his expert opinion on whether it was suicide or murder, they conveniently left out supposed blood smears and bloody towels that were found in Danny's hotel room. Ernie Harrison, who worked for Le Scrub, yes, that's the name of the company, which it just so happens to be a professional crime scene cleanup company, that the Sheraton used to clean Danny's room stated that, quote, there were bloodstained towels on the bathroom floor that I picked up and disposed of, end quote. Now, we touch on Danny's missing briefcase. Just before his death, Danny had a briefcase full of documents and notes. When his body's found, that briefcase is nowhere to be seen. At best, this indicates someone secretly found his body and removed the notes. At worst... It means someone else was there when Danny died. During the interviewing of all hotel employees who may have had contact with Danny, a front desk employee told police that Mr. Casalero may have had a brown briefcase when he checked into the hotel. Police were unable to locate any briefcase or documents during the searches of Mr. Casalero's hotel room, his car, the hotel, or the area surrounding the hotel. Another point that we would like to bring up is that the Boer report lied about a witness's existence. The Justice Department's Boer report, which dismissed Danny's death as a suicide, not only failed to disclose one of the witnesses who saw the briefcase just before his death, it falsely stated that police found only one person who thought they had seen the briefcase. A review of the handwritten police notes proves that this is wrong, as a second witness very clearly states that they saw, without a doubt, a briefcase full of papers shortly before Danny passed away. The Department of Justice 
had these notes sealed. Another one is the FBI lied to Congress. When Congress asked the FBI about Danny's death, the FBI responded with a claim that they hadn't looked into it. This is a complete lie. The FBI's claim to Congress that they could not investigate the matter and that no federal law appeared to have been broken is also contradicted by materials from the Martinsburg offices that the Bureau insisted had jurisdiction. According to a letter from then-assistant prosecutor who still worked in the office years later, the Casalero file had been sealed on the direction of, quote, federal authorities who took copies of everything after informing the Martinsburg offices that they were no longer the custodians of those records. The federal authorities then instructed the Martinsburg offices not to unseal or otherwise discuss the material unless they receive a, quote, federal release. There's a lot of tomfuckery happening right now. So the FBI pressured agents to conclude suicide. And this is again from Muckrock, and they had uncovered that more than half the FBI agents that did look into Danny's death, quote, questioned the conclusion of suicide, end quote, and recommended further investigation, despite being aware that this would be a threat to their own careers. In a memo obtained by Muckrock, it states, quote, however, some questions remain in my mind about the Casalero death and his allegations. Before the task force was broken up, I asked each of the agents for his or her subjective off-the-record view of the case. At least half of them thought the matter should be further pursued and questioned the conclusion of suicide. I thought that level of doubt was especially significant because even at the time when they were interviewed, which was December of 1992, it was clear that to express those views risked one's own judgment being called into question, end quote. Now, 90% of the FBI file on Danny Casalero has mysteriously gone missing. The FBI and the Department of Justice can't seem to agree about the status of the file on Danny, with the Department of Justice claiming that more than 90% of the file is missing. Another point of contention is that a suspect in Danny's death threatened Danny. Now, this is according to an allegedly coming from the ex-girlfriend of the chief suspect in the in Danny's death. Joseph Queller had previously threatened Casalero, according to his ex-girlfriend. After Danny died, Mr. Queller stopped dating this young lady who goes by Miss Knowles, and she told Muckrock that at one point as their relationship was ending, Queller made a veiled threat to her, stating that she was asking too many questions about Mr. Casalero, that she had two children, and that she would not be doing them a favor if she were to wind up like Mr. Casalero or another journalist who had been killed in Guatemala. Now, Mr. Queller has denied making those statements to her. DOJ ignored Queller's contradictory alibis. Now, Queller advised that three to four weeks prior to Danny's death, he left for Panama and was advised of Danny's death through a phone call to Miss Knowles. Queller returned from Panama to attend Danny's funeral, where he met members of Danny's family, but has not had any contact with either family members or Danny's associates since that time. If Queller had left for Panama at that time, he would have already been processed into the Southern Command and wouldn't have returned to Washington, D.C. to process out of Desert Storm. And Desert Storm, for those of you that are geographically challenged, is a nowhere near Panama. So he would have had to have been processed out of Desert Storm and then into Southern Command, which did have jurisdiction over operations in and around Panama. The two alibis are impossible to reconcile. To date, there is no evidence that the Department of Justice ever investigated the change in Queller's alibi, nor was it publicly reported on. There was, according to Muckrock, an illegal wiretap in Danny's investigation. 
the wiretap information likely relates to one of three things. The first is the use of an otherwise wholly undisclosed wiretap used specifically in monitoring of Danny or the investigation into his death. The former would hardly be surprising given the nature of the case that Danny was working on, though it would be significant if it had been used in the fact that the government had never disclosed the use of a wiretap while maintaining that suicide was the only possibility. They ever found plausible would have significantly undermined that claim. It would also require a re-examination of the Department of Justice apparent ignoring of the contradictory alibis given to them by Queller, who was the main suspect in Danny's death. The second thing that the wiretap could relate to is the possibility that the wiretap was on William Hamilton. Remember, he's the creator of Promise and the head of Inslaw, who was in regular contact with Danny. According to Hamilton, he was repeatedly warned by Sean McDade of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, known for investigating parts of the Promise scandal, that Hamilton's telephone and email communications were being intercepted and monitored. Hamilton states that McDade offered this as a statement rather than an opinion. The only likely possibility that wouldn't add much additional information is if the wiretap related primarily to Robert Booth Nichols, who is known to have been subject to physical and electronic surveillance due to his high-level connections with organized crime. Due to his well-publicized death and prior disclosure of the wiretap and the public disclosure of the affidavit in support of the application for it, Nichols is the least likely person to have had this information withheld. While the details of those wiretaps might justifiably still be withheld, they're unlikely to have been included in the files, and Robert Booth Nichols' file was maintained in a separate folder. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Danny Casalero case. Now, it's not the only odd angle in this case there is a couple of people that we kind of touched on that have a lot more shady dealings and we may or may not visit those in a future podcast now while it is a little anticlimactic if you knew the outcome of the case but As for me, as for Coach, we both believe that Danny was killed. And his brother had stated, I think, to Unsolved Mysteries that Danny became queasy at the sight of his own blood, which I know doesn't necessarily exclude someone from committing suicide. But if you don't like the sight of your own blood, you're not going to cut your wrist and bleed out in the bathtub. You're either going to jump in front of a moving vehicle or you're going to use a gun. Let us know what you think. As for recommendations, I recommend that you get on Muckrock and take a look at some of their articles. The one that I talked about, Miss Maxwell, is also on there. So without anything to discuss further, I bid you adieu and deuces.